The leaders of ESA and other space agencies, this week on Planetary Radio. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. And that was U.S. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy on a blazingly hot Houston, Texas afternoon at Rice University. The date was September 12, 1962. Exactly 60 years later, an international coalition is attempting to send more humans to the moon. In this special episode, we'll talk with a series of international leaders who came to the Kennedy Space Center hoping to see the launch of Artemis I, the first big step into space that will realize this new goal. First, though, a bit more history. Hardly anyone alive has listened to the entirety of Kennedy's speech that day. It's a remarkable statement delivered by a young president who seemed to barely notice the heat, even as dignitaries behind him mopped their brows. We now know that Kennedy had expressed serious doubts about setting the United States on course for the moon, but you'd never know it from his remarks. Here are the last four minutes of that stirring address delivered six decades ago. To be sure, all this costs us all a good deal of money. This year's space budget is three times what it was in January 1961, and it is greater than the space budget of the previous eight years combined. That budget now stands at $5,400,000,000 a year, a staggering sum, though somewhat less than we pay for cigarettes and cigars every year. Space expenditures, <laughs> space expenditures will soon rise some more, from 40 cents per person per week to more than 50 cents a week for every man, woman, and child in the United States. For we have given this program a high national priority, even though I realize that this is, in some measure, an act of faith and vision. For we do not now know what benefits await us. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses, several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival, on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, 
causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this, and do it right, and do it first before this dictate is out, then we must be bold. I'm the one who's doing all the work, so uh, we just want you to stay cool for a minute. However, I think we're going to do it. And I think that uh, we must pay what needs to be paid. I don't think we ought to waste any money, but I think we ought to do the job. And this will be done in the decade of the 60s. It may be done while some of you are still here at school at this college and university. It will be done during the terms of office of some of the people who sit here on this platform. But it will be done, and it will be done before the end of this decade. And I am delighted that this university is playing a part in putting a man on the moon as part of a great national effort of the United States of America. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said, because it is there. Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. John F. Kennedy at Rice University on the 12th of September, 1962. NASA was back at Rice on the 60th anniversary of the speech, with Administrator Bill Nelson leading the celebration. And what of Artemis I? Repair of the liquid hydrogen leak continues. As I speak, the next launch opportunity has moved from September 23rd to the 27th, with another window opening on October 2nd. You'll find other lunar news in the September 9 edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter, including word that Danuri, South Korea's lunar orbiter, is healthy and on its way to the moon after using a solar slingshot to help it get there. Arrival is expected on December 16. You'll always find awe-inspiring images at planetary.org downlink, which this time include another stunner from the JWST and a shot of the sun's surface taken by the now operational Inaway Solar Telescope in Hawaii, the most powerful instrument of its kind by far. We also learned that a study of astronaut blood samples found higher rates of mutation in stem cells, demonstrating, again, that keeping humans healthy in space is full of challenges. You'll also see a shot I'm pretty proud of. It's the big KSC countdown clock that I photographed against a gorgeous Florida sunrise. August 28th was the day before I caught that sunrise. You may have heard some of the conversations my colleagues and I had with special NASA guests on last week's show, I promised we'd be back with more, and we'll start with the Director General of the European Space Agency. Scientist-turned-administrator Joseph Hoshbacher sat down with me in the noisy dining room at the Kennedy Space Center, where interviews were underway all around us. Joseph, thank you very much. We are very honored to be able to speak with you as the, the leader of ESA. Oh, thank you. 
the honor and the pleasure is all mine. I'm really um, so excited to be here and uh, looking forward to what's happening tomorrow. A lot of it, I think, needs to focus on the international collaboration that this represents. The Artemis Accords, but separately, the very close collaboration that ESA enjoys with NASA and has for so many years. Yeah. No, it's uh, true. We have uh, an incredibly good and strong uh, cooperation with NASA for many decades. And uh, this really spans uh, many domains. Uh, human exploration, of course, is one of them. And uh, through Artemis, uh, today, tomorrow, and the next couple of weeks, we will focus on, on that part. Uh, but also we have uh, excellent cooperations on space science, but also Earth observation. Uh, we have uh, a very good uh, cooperation in Earth observation. For example, the contributions uh, which uh, the US is also making to uh, uh, the Copernicus program, uh, Sentinel-6, for example. I happen to be the director of Earth Observation at that time in ESA before the current job. And uh, because of the strong US contribution to that particular mission, it's the first time that we have named a satellite after uh, an American uh, space uh, expert, uh, Michael Freilich, uh, who used to be the director of Earth Science in, uh, in NASA, because he was not only a, a fantastic uh, space expert, he was a personal friend of mine. When, of course, we heard about his uh, his uh, personal illness, um, really very unfortunately he passed away uh, just recently, I decided to name one of our flagship satellites uh, after him. And we have named or renamed our Sentinel-6 satellite, Sentinel-6 Michael Freilich, in his honor, uh, and, but also to underline the strong cooperation which we have with NASA on many domains, in Earth observation in this particular case, but also in many other domains. So yes, the partnership is, uh, is excellent, is very strong, and uh, I would like to say through Artemis it is uh, lifted one more level up, uh, which was also said by Administrator Nelson when he recently came to speak to my member states uh, in June this year in the Netherlands, uh, where I invited him to speak to uh, the ESA Council, uh, which brings together all the 22 member states of the European Space Agency. And he gave an incredibly strong speech, very powerful, but also very eloquent to underline uh, the good cooperation, the partnership we have. And he himself said, we are lifting now this partnership to the next level uh, through the activities which we do. And I'm very humbled about these uh, words of uh, the NASA administrator. Uh, I'm also very uh, humbled by the trust NASA puts into ESA in the participation of uh, uh, us uh, in the Artemis mission in a very crucial element, uh, the European Service Module. Uh, but also, I'm also proud. I'm also proud to be part of it and have the ESA logo on the SLS rocket. I think that's beautiful and uh, I have to say personally, it really is nice to see that. I think that service module is uh, certainly the, the most obvious representation within this mission and within the Artemis program of Europe's participation, of ESA's participation. The development of that service module, no small task. Uh, no small task, believe me, and like uh, many things in space, uh, uh, it's a rather complex mission. Uh, you know that we are, we are struggling, have been struggling for many years uh, with a particular valve uh, which uh, has uh, created some, some hiccups and also some uh, headaches on, on our side. Uh, but it's uh, really the complexity there. Are, uh, 20,000 uh, individual pieces in the European Service Module coming from 10 different countries uh, and the, from their industries. 
and you can imagine what it means to bring all this together uh, and make make sure it works uh, flawlessly uh, and it all fits uh, together as one one piece that uh, that is providing all the functions that are required so yes it was uh, quite a development work which we undertook uh, but I think we it is fair to say that uh, we are on a very good path uh, uh, Bill Nelson and his uh, Key people have been um, in the facilities in Bremen uh, just this summer and have been looking at the uh, Airbus uh, facilities producing the European service module. And uh, he really has been satisfied with uh, the, the, the results, uh, the way the work is done and also the progress uh, which we are making. In fact, to the point that he was asking us whether we would be capable of delivering one European service, mod service module per year uh, for future Artemis missions. And that's something on which we are working right now. Uh, to have a cadence, uh, almost serial production of these ESMs uh, for all the Artemis missions to come. So yes, it has been a major challenge, uh, a major effort. Very glad uh, that uh, we went through all this uh, very positively. And now we are at the stage where we can say we are very confident to have this uh, powering the Orion uh, uh, spacecraft uh, capsule and bringing it back, uh, back to Earth uh, safely. And that's uh, the job of, of the Europeans. So I'm very happy to be part of that. Turning from the collaboration between NASA and ESA, maybe focusing more internally on ESA, are, are you familiar with the, the phrase herding cats? 22 different nations making up ESA. That has to present some substantial challenges, uh, keeping everybody working toward a particular goal and even identifying those goals. Oh, that is my daily job, and uh, as you say, this is... Uh, Hurting the cat. So actually, I, I, I quote again uh, Bill Nelson, uh, who was saying that, in fact, uh, during his visit when he was in, in Europe, he was saying, look, Joseph, for me, you are Merlin. You are a magician. Uh, what you need to do is every single day make sure that these 22 member states plus a few other partners are going in one direction and not uh, running away in all different directions. Uh, and that is no, no small task, uh, quoting uh, his words there. But uh, let me say, Yes, this is a challenge, uh, but I'm really having fun in doing it. It's a huge challenge. It's not always easy to get uh, Germany and France and Italy and the UK and Switzerland and Norway and Austria and Poland and many other countries uh, in, one, in one direction. But that's, uh, that's my job and I see it really as a challenge to, to do that. So how do we do that? Um, of course, um, what we always do, and this is the, um, I would say, the, um, the success of ESA, we are defining the space programs through different ways, uh, sometimes driven by inputs from scientists, where scientists tell us, space scientists, we, we need to explore uh, whether there's life out there on one of the Jupiter or Saturn moons, and uh, then we scratch our head and we think uh, what can be done, what needs to be done in order to see whether there can be life out there or not. Uh, uh, and we, of course, eventually define a mission. And you can imagine if you define something of that scale, this is huge. It's huge in terms of time scale, but also funding that is required. So uh, my job will be to, apart from developing the first uh, program proposal, the proposal for a project, to then see whether this flies with the member states and uh, whether they are uh, having uh, the willingness and the appetite to invest in it and make it happen. And that's exactly, uh, I would say, my, my, my daily job, to uh, define these programs, test uh, with the member states uh, whether this uh, is uh, in their interest. And there are many facets that uh, 
uh, give the answer to that. Uh, one is industrial, whether uh, the country has an industrial interest in order to engage, but it's also societal, it's political, it's strategic. Uh, uh, there are many dimensions uh, that, uh, that are involved in this, uh, in this decision in one country, and of course you have to then put all 22 countries together. And then what we do in ESA and the European Space Agency is we define these programs, we do it every three years uh, at so-called ESA ministerial conferences, uh, we put them on the table, and then we invite member states to sign up to them and to fund them. And uh, the challenging thing is that uh, we are not funded by the member states just because they are a member. We have only 20% of our budget that is contributed to the European Space Agency's budget because of membership, according to the size of the country. But the 80% of money we are getting through what we call optional programs. That means we define these programs and then we allow countries to either participate or not participate large or small in a certain project and it's really up to them uh, to define their participation which means that we may have a project where we have 10 countries participating or 22 countries participating so this is completely variable and they can really choose out on their own of course this adds pressure on my side because I need to have attractive programs uh, otherwise they wouldn't uh, sign up to it and uh, we will not be able to, to get them off the ground. So yes, it's uh, a lot of work we need to do to make sure that those programs we put on the table at the end get uh, full funding uh, in order to fully develop a satellite and fully fly to space, not only 80% or 50% of it. We need the, the whole money in order to achieve that. So yes, uh, it's complicated, I uh, think it's true, but uh, it's also fun doing the job. When you were focused mostly on doing science of your own, did you envision that one day you would need to basically be a salesman? You are well informed that I am a scientist, yes. Uh, uh, actually, I did enjoy a lot my science. I, uh, as you know, I come uh, uh, from a geoscience domain. I was studying meteorology and geophysics. And uh, I did enjoy analyzing satellite data and uh, deriving information uh, from radar images, uh, from optical images, for agriculture, for forestry, for disaster management, for security, uh, for climate change, uh, many parameters uh, we have been deriving from the satellite data. And yes, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. But of course, if you grow in your responsibility, you see also that you can also influence uh, uh, activities by taking on responsibilities in a management position. Uh, and that's what I'm having now. I'm having now a management position and of course my science is out the window. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not doing science anymore uh, actively, but I need my science background to make uh, good judgment, good decisions, uh, to assess quickly whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, and yes, so this uh, experience and uh, background I think is essential uh, also in leadership, uh, management leadership positions uh, to have good judgment and uh, therefore decide you know, whether a project makes sense or doesn't make sense. Of course, you, there are many opinions that flow into it, but your own gut feeling is quite often an, a very important aspect of this as well. The Planetary Society, we do our best to uh, celebrate the accomplishments of space agencies around the world. NASA obviously often is very prominent uh, at the top of that list, but ESA has so much to be proud of, and I wonder if you'd like to, to talk about you know, some of those successes. I mean, an immediate one that comes to mind for me is already back a few years, Rosetta. Yeah, we, we have uh, actually a lot to talk about, and sometimes my own people tell me, look, Joseph, it is not fair that when you talk space, even in Europe, everyone talks NASA and nobody talks ESA. I feel also bad myself because that's my job and, uh, uh, and I know that my people are doing an incredibly 
good work on uh, in engineering, in science, and uh, every single day. Yes, uh, some of the achievements you mentioned, Rosetta. Rosetta was amazing. I mean, landing on a comet uh, with a lander, uh, the first time ever. I mean, this is uh, yeah has not happened before and has really created also major headlines, uh, but also other achievements which uh, which we have. Gaia, for example. Gaia is another space science mission. Today, uh, the majority of all scientific publications in space science are based on Gaia data, uh, which is incredible. We have just released another uh, another uh, data set, uh, release of the data set. Uh, again, uh, we have many Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, doing their work based on our data. Of course, many times we do work with international partners, with NASA, with JAXA, with other international partners, and that also makes us, I think, strong that we have this good network with other international space agencies. But also in Earth observation, Copernicus is a program which is, if I may say, the gold standard today in Earth observation. It's providing an operational service, operational data to people around the world for free, because this was one of the points I was really insisting that these data are free of charge for everyone at any place in the world. And we provide data that you need for agriculture, forestry, ship routing, uh, uh, weather forecasting, uh, for disaster management from this fleet of uh, Copernicus Sentinel satellites. Uh, so yes, uh, Galileo is another example where we do something very similar to GPS, a navigation system, which is top standard, uh, same quality as, uh, uh, as the GPS system and uh, routinely used by Actually, in an iPhone or any other mobile phone, you would have the receivers for both of them, and they are both uh, both being there. So yes, there are many examples of uh, achievements, uh, discoveries, uh, which sometimes you don't hear about. Uh, but I, I, I'm told by my people I should make a bigger effort to communicate more, and I hope uh, the Planetary Society helps me doing that. We'll keep doing our best. One last quick one. Are you hopeful that we will still someday see that ExoMars rover? the Rosalind Franklin rover, uh, rolling across Mars. As Director General of the European Space Agency, I have to be hopeful and I will be hopeful, but I can also tell you that it is a difficult uh, decision and a difficult uh, undertaking. We need uh, fresh uh, investments to make. Uh, I'm actually preparing a proposal for my member states in November at the ESA Ministerial Conference and then we will make the decisions. But yes, the science uh, will still be unique uh, also in a couple of years from today drilling into the surface, two meters, analyzing this probe and uh, seeing whether there might have been life down there, uh, two meters uh, below the surface of Mars, is still top science. Nobody else will have done it by then. Uh, so yes, uh, from a science point of view, uh, this is still a very, uh, a very important mission. We wish you the greatest of success with that mission. All of us want to see that drill go deep below the surface and see what it finds down there, uh, but also just across all of the work that, uh, that ESA does. And uh, thank you for the few minutes today. No, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure, and I hope I have more opportunities. It's, uh, it's very important for me as well. Thank you. European Space Agency Director General Joseph Ashbacher. The leaders of individual space agencies were also at the Cape for the next day's launch attempt, the DLR is the German space agency. Anna Christmann, I'm the coordinator of space for the German government. My name is Walter Pelzer, I'm member of the executive board of DLR and director general of the German space agency. It is an honor to be able to talk to the two of you. 
who help guide one of the world's most successful space agencies, the DLR, the German Space Agency. Thank you for uh, taking a couple of minutes with us today. Sure, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. We are spending a lot of time talking to the international partners, signatories to the Artemis Accords, but also, of course, participants in uh, ESA, the European Space Agency. And I note that um, maybe since the most obvious example of that collaboration between ESA and NASA is out there on the pad now, the service module, and I understand the DLR had a, a very large portion of the responsibility for developing that very complicated uh, system. Yes, that's true, but I wouldn't say DLR, it's a German industry and a German science community. So from this point of view, the German, let's say, share of the value chain is more than 50%. And, uh, but there are 10 member states, 10 ESA member states, uh, participating and uh, Bremen is the assembly line, the assembly point where everybody from Europe supplies his uh, contribution and we get together and we assemble the European service model. We are very proud that this takes place in Bremen and this is the reason why the first service module is called Bremen. Which I, was something I did not know until just a couple of days ago that it actually has, a, it is named for the town in which it is being assembled. We've also talked about what these partnerships represent. And I believe you are more on the policy side, right? What goes into creating a collaboration between nations, or among nations, I should say? For us, international collaboration in space is very important, and Artemis is a great example for that. I mean, how important is it that we are going to the moon together now, after 50 years again? But now Europe and Germany are part of this mission, and that is something that is very important to us. And we are very happy that there is a very trustful relationship between NASA and the US side and the European side. That is something we have uh, learned over the last years uh, in preparing this mission. It was really a close and trustful uh, partnership and that is something that we definitely want to also have in future. The relationship that ESA has with NASA is on a different level, but then the Artemis Accords, which are the individual uh, relationships which many nations have signed on to with NASA. That is done by individual nations. We've seen quite a few sign on recently. France, I think most recently, just in the last few days. Germany, not there yet. We think space exploration is something that is relevant for the whole planet. So it should be a multilateral process to find rules how we do it together. But in this finding the joint rules, we see the Artemis Accords as one important part. And that is why we are now in really close debates also with NASA and the US government and how we can be partner in this jointly searching for the joint rules for space exploration and how the Artemis Accords are part of that. So we are also in um, meetings here with NASA um, around the start of the first Artemis mission. So that's something that's for us very important to um, deepen the relationship uh, from the American and the German side. And we see the Accords as something that we will have to talk about very intensively the next weeks. I also think, uh, independently of the successes that the DLR has achieved for many, many decades in space, and in particular space exploration since, I mean, we're the planetary society, so we tend to look at that, that side more. So many missions that you can point to, uh, I think with great pride, 
Um, are, are there standouts in your mind, Walter? As you said, there's a bunch of, of uh, missions which are extraordinary. And I think um, our teams did great jobs uh, to put them into practice. But uh, I wouldn't grab one because you have also uh, to keep in mind that, um, of course, there are some which um, comes up to your mind right away. Because especially when it comes to exploration, it's, it's very tempting to, to pick up the one which deals with Mars. Nevertheless, also others are very important because if you look at the performance that the teams put into practice, uh, depend on the budget, depend on the time they had available. So from this point of view, I, I'm not able to, to pinpoint one mission or one, one project uh, which is absolutely outstanding. From my point of view, what's outstanding is the commitment of our teams, the commitment that they are willing to go an extra mile to put it into practice, to, uh, let's say, suffer to make sure that at the end, even, or especially when, when we work with international teams, that at the end, having all obstacles in mind, the mission will be a success. And this is, from my point of view, this sense of, of um, working that we are one team, one DLR. This is a statement we have. Um, this is an important topic and this is what I'm proud of, that um, I'm allowed to work with these people together. Maybe I would add one project, but uh, of course it's right that we have many successful projects. But one of that is also a collaboration with the US side. is a satellite mission called GRACE and it is about uh, measuring uh, with gravity measurements, uh, how water is on the Earth uh, developing. And that is something that is very important for climate effects and uh, one satellite mission that is also named uh, several times in the International Climate Report. And so I think these kind of missions also show how important space is for us on the planet Earth and to save our planet. And that is also a very important part for us, like exploration, but also Earth observation and using it for fighting climate crisis. I am very glad you brought that up because I did want to ask you, as NASA plays an important role in climate and environmental research here in the United States and around the world, what is the DLR's role on, on behalf of Germany and perhaps more broadly ESA when it comes to the tremendous challenges that we face, climate change in particular? I maybe start because we have a very uh, high expertise in climate technologies in Germany and also in climate satellites. And uh, so far as it's a priority also for the ESA, we have a ministerial meeting in November this year and Earth observation and green space is definitely one of our top priorities. So we really want to bring our German and European expertise uh, into the international collaboration. So it's very important for us. We spoke about grace and um Yeah, when, when it comes to the topic, we need to discuss why it's important to do space. GRACE is an excellent example, because on the one hand side, with space, we can monitor excellent. But GRACE has the capacity actually to um, avoid conflicts in the future, because for the first time, we are able to see how groundwater is developing. And we can see where people live, how groundwater is developing, and we see where areas might exist where we are running into a conflict due to the effect of groundwater, for example. So from this point of view, if you ask what uh, is the responsibility, for example, of the German Space Agency, due to the fact that 
this kind of mission, the only one globally, not ESA, not, not Russia, not China, nobody except this cooperation between Germany and US is taking place and we have to, to actually continue this mission. This is, from my point of view, one of the responsibilities when we're talking about responsibilities of the German Space Agency that this mission will be continued by 2026 and then we will hand it over to the European Space Agency because the, actually the next step is already planned that we have an even bigger mission like GRACE together with the US using more technology, making it more powerful. Uh, this mission will take place within, uh, the, uh, in the framework of ESA. And now we have uh, to bridge actually the time um, until ESA is ready to take over. And this is the time where we as DLR want to manage with German scientists and German industry and JPL on the um, US side to um, bridge the time from 2026 on. It is an amazing mission just to think that we have this kind of sophistication in what can be done from orbit. I'm going to bring up one other mission because it's one we paid very close attention to at the Planetary Society, a tremendous success of now a few years ago. And I know you don't want to play favorites, I don't blame you, but um, Rosetta, which DLR made a tremendous contribution to. Yes, Rosetta is also an, a mission and uh, for quite some we thought it's a failure. Yeah, we, we saw it because the landing took not place in the way we actually saw it. And, uh, well, it's kind of difficult to have uh, pictures uh, from a black stone in black, black circumstances. Uh, so um, the, the pictures are kind of hard and the science we actually created over there is now helping us fighting fires. Because this technology developed by the Max Planck Institute actually boiled down to a camera which is able to detect, uh, to detect fire, uh, forest fires. In Eastern Germany we have a lot of these cameras which actually are done and produced by a small and medium-sized company based on this technology. So um, I'm not now talking about this exploration, about this great thing to land on a comet. Um, actually now I, I'm talking about that even these things where everybody thinks why are humankind doing it? It helps us, does not help at all. No, actually we see technology coming right away out of this mission, tackling an issue, fires in our forest, which is now everyday issue. And this technology, this mission, Rosella, is helping us to fight this issue. That is a wonderful angle on that mission, which stood on its own as a tremendous success. Uh, just the pure science that it did, but I had no idea. Just landing on a comet, just the landing yes, itself, yes, yes. everything else, forget everything else. To be able to land a satellite on a comet, this is, from my point of view, uh, a tremendous thing. And yeah, at the end, uh, at the first place we thought it's, it's not, uh, it was not successful, but it took some time until we found our, our piece of technology and then it worked. I was talking to Joseph Ashbacher of, of uh, ESA about the phrase that we use in this country, herding cats, and uh, the 22 members of ESA, and how they are able to come together as a collaboration just among themselves to achieve the things that ESA has achieved. We, we see it in the service module out there on that big rocket. Um, an ongoing challenge though, right? In Europe, we are really experts in complex collaboration, <laughs> and uh, I think that is very uh, 
important and it's part of our success. And we know very well we want to be part of a very strong space ecosystem worldwide. And in Europe, we can achieve this by really working closely together. So ESA for us is a very important actor and we are proud and happy to be a strong partner in that. Thank you very much. Here's hoping that we all get to see that service module head for the moon as soon as tomorrow. Uh, and I look forward to enjoying it with you. Yeah, we are really excited. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having us and thank you for these well-shaped questions. Joining me next was Giorgio Sacoccia, president of ASI, the Italian space agency. You'll hear Giorgio mention his colleague Simona Perotta. Simona is project manager for Licia Cube, the tiny CubeSat that has now been released from DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test spacecraft. We'll save my conversation with Simona for next week's show when we'll get a preview of DART's September 26 impact on asteroid Dimorphos. It'll come from the mission's coordination lead, Nancy Chabo. Giorgio, thank you so much for joining us uh, in our coverage of Artemis One here today. It has been wonderful to talk to so many of the international representatives of uh, the other space agencies that are involved in this mission. Well, the beauty and, uh, and the reason of happiness is indeed be part of this uh, network of, uh, of uh, space agencies uh, working together for a big project like the one that we, we are seeing here tomorrow. We'll talk initially a little bit more about Artemis One, but there are so many other uh, accomplishments of the Italian Space Agency, which I don't think have gotten the attention that they deserve in the United States. We do our best. Maybe one in particular that we should bring up is the secondary payload that is from an Italian company, uh, Argo Moon, that, uh, that little CubeSat, which uh, will be accompanying the, the Orion capsule. Yes, Argomoon is uh, the only um, European uh, secondary payload that will fly on uh, Artemis One. Of course, we are very proud of that. To me, a part of being a very technological uh, satellite with a lot of uh, innovation on board, etc., we are, we are happy. Um, I think as a symbolic value also, because um, uh, the uh, contribution of, uh, of Italy to, to exploration in general has been uh, as a route that goes very uh, back in time of many, many years. And this goes through collaboration directly with NASA and, of course, through the European Space Agency effort. So, so in a way, the fact that we have the Argomon, uh, I see it really as sort of a symbolic uh, uh, pinpoint of, of uh, the role that Italy has had in, uh, so far and will have in the future on, on space exploration. Italy is also a signatory on the Artemis Accords, isn't it? Isn't it? Correct. We were among the first one, uh, certainly among the first one in Europe. As a matter of fact, I recall I signed myself with uh, Jim Bradstein uh, the uh, letter of intent already back in September 19, a few months after my start as president in ASI. And um, this was really to show immediately, as soon as possible, the fact that Italy was fully committed to the Artemis program. Are there other ways that you would like to highlight in which the Italian Space Agency is contributing to what we hope we're going to see tomorrow? How, how much time you give me? <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Okay. 
Okay, we start tomorrow, of course, as, a, as, a, as you know, not only with Argum, but with a major contribution to the uh, European service module uh, technologies and element among the major subsystems. But the idea is to be really major players in the full Artemis program. Uh, we started in, back in 19 uh, through ESA subscribing at the, at the Ministerial Conference of ESA 19 to be the major contributor to the Lunar Gateway, European contribution to the Lunar Gateway. In fact, Italy, uh, Italian industry is the prime contractor of the IAB module, you know, the largest uh, habitable module on the Lunar Gateway, and we are also um, big contributors to the Esprit module, you know, the, for refueling and other mm -hmm. things. So, in addition, our industry directly is the provider together with the American industry of the HALO uh, logistic module. So a large part of the Lunar Gateway will have Italian, uh, Italian contribution. Moving to the surface of the moon, just uh, two months ago in, 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 uh, in June, I have signed an agreement with uh, Bill Nelson, with the administrator of NASA in Rome. He was visiting us in Rome. And uh, we signed an agreement uh, um, because we would like to contribute directly to, uh, to NASA with uh, uh, one or even possibly more than one, I mean, a series of uh, scientific and logistic modules mm. that we are in, because they would be based a lot on the experience and, and the capacity that uh, Italy developed for the International Space Station, we can actually provide those modules relatively uh, soon, already in principle around 26, 27, 2027. Mm. So this could be among the first bricks of the um, surface uh, architecture of, uh, of Artemis. We are ready to do it, we have the capability to do it, and of course it's a collaboration we want to bring. And a possible other next step will be or could be again with the European Space Agency. We will discuss that at the upcoming ministerial conference in November of ESA, ESA ministerial conference. We are talking about uh, a European lunar lander. It's a proposal from ESA. Uh, will be discussed, of course. It, there is a process to get to this, uh, the approval of such a project. If that will become a reality, we know and we are sure that uh, Italy again will be among the major participants to this program. So as you see, many bricks in part, and, um, with NASA we keep on working on a regular basis, as, uh, basis as and NASA to um, identify other opportunities for direct contribution. For example, we, we are interested a lot in uh, telecommunication navigation infrastructures around the moon. We can do this again through ESA, but also directly with, uh, with NASA if necessary. And of course, uh, science, uh, provision of uh, payload, and the Austrians one day that we are preparing for the next big step. Much deeper involvement, in fact, than Artemis One than I was aware of. But I also, as I said, want to talk about the other sorts of accomplishments that the Italian Space Agency, ASI, has had, particularly in space exploration. So many times as I have uh, reported on missions like uh, Cassini, as one example, it appears that uh, your agency has, and, and Italy in general, has had particular success in the contribution of radar, and uh, maybe infrared detectors as well, but particularly radar, I think. Yeah, radar is a technology where, for sure, Italy has, uh, has an important footprint and, uh, and a great capacity of contributing. We do it for 
for her, for her conservation. We, we successfully developed and we are developing the, the, the continuation of a constellation based on the radar technologies called Cosmos SkyMed. It's a dual-use uh, constellation. But what we learned through this development was used also uh, for scientific mission uh, that uh, will have used and will use the radar technology on other planets, on Mars, uh, etc. So it's really a discipline where we have a strong expertise recognized at international level. You mentioned infrared or uh, I would say more um, hyperspectral, uh, which also has uh, an aspect of infrared. We have launched not long ago, well, okay, <laughs> already three years have passed, uh, a satellite called Prisma which is uh, um, a champion in the area of, of um, uh, hyperspectral uh, observation uh, technology. And of course, the idea now is to develop other, other um, satellites based on this technology. It's very interesting because this type of technology allows not only to observe, but also to understand the composition, for example, of the, of the areas you are observing. And this is, uh, has an incredible value if you consider application like uh, monitoring of pollution, uh, things like that. There is another mission underway, primarily thought of as a NASA mission, uh, the DART mission. And when I mentioned it to you because I wanted to bring up a, a traveling companion of, uh, of DART, Lichia Cube. Lichia Cube. Um, you said that you had a colleague here that uh, you wanted to bring out to join us. Yes, Simone, who is here, is uh, uh, the program manager of Lichia Cube. And the nice thing of Lichia Cube is that uh, is uh, very well associated to also to Argomoon, what is flying on SLS, because they are both witnesses of uh, something that will happen in space. And I'm sure Simone will have a lot to tell you about LeisureCube and Argomoon as well. You've been very generous with your time. I have just one more question for you. As I note, there are astronauts behind you here talking with each other. And it reminded me that um, uh, I got to spend a little bit of time a few years ago with Samantha Cristoforetti, uh, and she was a guest on our program. You could not have a better ambassador in space representing Italy. You are exactly using the right word. Uh, she's an ambassador. As, I mean, every astronaut has this important uh, role, really being ambassador, not only of space activities, but of uh, a positive approach to, to science, to STEM uh, subjects, etc. It's an important uh, role, I mean, I mean reference for, uh, for young generation. Of course, having the only uh, female uh, European astronaut of Italian uh, nationality is, of course, for us um, an extra reason to be uh, proud of her. And um, she's doing really a really fantastic job in promoting the, the uh, space activities and, uh, and what space can do for, to protect human beings. As you know, ESA is hopefully going to have several spots for uh, European astronauts on future Artemis missions. I assume that you would hope that one of those might be uh, representing Italy. Well, for sure, um, the participation that I described before to the Artemis program that Italy is, is having and wants to have as a target also the, to create opportunities for, uh, for astronauts of, uh, of uh, Italian nationality. There will be, as you said, the opportunities around the moon, on the getaway, and on the surface of the moon. We are just at the beginning, but we want to have also Italian astronauts on, on, uh, up there. It's part of the, of the beautiful game we are playing nowadays.
Well said. Thank you, Giorgio. Best of success to you and all of Asi with uh, tomorrow's launch. We hope it'll happen tomorrow, and particularly with uh, that, uh, that little CubeSat called Argo Moon. Thank you, and best of success to all of us, to the, to the, the whole humanity. We'll wrap up our visits with International Space Agency leadership by welcoming back David Parker. David is the Director of Human and Robotic Exploration for ESA, the European Space Agency. Listen for the great question added by my Space Policy Edition colleague, Planetary Society Chief Advocate, Casey Dreyer. David Parker, it is delightful to talk to you once again. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. This is a historic moment, and I I can't actually believe I'm here. It is certainly very appropriate that you are here as the Director of Human and Robotic Exploration for ESA. Long history in doing this kind of stuff. Talk to us about what this represents in terms of an international partnership. Well, this is uh, super important. You know, uh, ESA has a very, very long-standing relationship with NASA on so many different activities, and the, but this is maybe the summit of it. I'm a child of Apollo. I remember the Apollo moon landings as a very small child. To be able, as Europe, to be part of this dream of returning humans to the moon is, is quite emotional. It's a summit of all the collaboration we have in James Webb and the International Space Station and uh, Mars Sample Return, all these different exciting programs. But sending humans into deep space, returning them to the moon, because we plan to go further one day onto Mars, it's fantastic, isn't it? Of course. I'm also one of those who remembers Apollo, though I don't think I was quite as small as you. Um, My colleague who's sitting with us, Ray Paletta, she's going to be talking with Tomas Pasquet in a few minutes. Uh, And this opportunity that that represents to not just have Europe participating in the mission, but to actually have members of the European community make the trip. Uh, That's also exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting. We, um, of course, have built European service modules um, initially uh, as an exchange for getting astronauts to fly to the International Space Station. So Thomas, Pesquet, all the other astronauts have already benefited from ESM-1, ESM-2, which is also here at the Cape, ESM-3 that's in in, uh, manufacture. Mm. But ESMs 4 and 5, and then our contributions to the Lunar Gateway, our contributions to the Artemis program, not to the space station program. And as a consequence, we've agreed with NASA uh, back in 2019 that we would have three seats on Orion missions uh, to deep space uh, as and when we're ready to go. That's also a very big step forward for the European Astronaut Corps. So many uh, experience we built up with the International Space Station, but going to the moon, they become, instead of scientists and workers, real explorers. We missed the opportunity to get a photo of you and uh, Thomas Zerbuchen greeting each other once again. That happened moments before I turned on the recorder. Uh, we talked with Thomas, though, about the Artemis Accords, these bi- bilateral agreements. ESA is something outside of that, right? It, it's not a bilateral thing. Well, yeah, the Artemis Accords are government-to-government uh, agreements. So certain countries sign up with the U.S. government uh, into the Artemis Accords, but of course the ESA is an agency and it's a governmental organization, so we could not sign on behalf of our governments. We, we are our ruling uh, our powers, as it were, are the national space agencies and space authorities in the different countries. But of course the Artemis Accords are non-binding expressions of how we would work in space as countries. 
what we sign with NASA are binding legal agreements, of which ESM is an example, the, what I referred to, the participation in the gateway. Those are solemn um, binding agreements where we promise to deliver in exchange for certain benefits. So they're part of the same overall constellation, if you like, it is a strange word, of, um, of different agreements that bind the, the spacefaring community together. And I don't know that you can actually speak as a representative of the UK, but we should mention that the UK is signed on to the Artemis Accords Absolutely. early. One of so many countries, uh, several countries in Europe have signed early, and some of you know countries like Australia joined early on, uh, but then you have some of the new spacefaring countries as well. And they really reflect the implementation of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. So they don't, they, they don't contain anything fundamentally new. What they reflect is, and therefore we're going to respect these uh, the treaty, and this is how we interpret the, um, the use of the treaty in the way we go forward. Because it's not, they, although they recall the Artemis Accords, they don't just refer to the moon exploration, they refer to the way that we use space more generally in, a, uh, in an era where it's more contested and more crowded the use of space. Uh, I was woken up last night by another space, SpaceX launch going off with Starlink. So there are ever more satellites up there. We have to think about how we're using the space environment. It's not, uh, it's not something that we want to mess around with, let's put it that way. Tens of thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit. Yeah, that's a concern, I guess, for another day. But let's turn to the robotic side of sure. your title. You mentioned in passing Mars sample return. I had told you just before we started that just a couple of weeks ago we had Richard Cook, the sample return program manager at JPL on. And as you know, we now have what appears to be a plan for that long-awaited holy grail. Um, and ESA still plays a very important part in this, but no fetch rover. Yeah, so the architecture has evolved. So if we cast our minds back to 2018, 2019, the original concept was based on a, a very large lander being built by JPL that would land not only the uh, Mars Ascent vehicle, the sample transfer arm that we're doing at ESA, but also the sample fetch rover that would scurry out, as I always used to say, uh, at high speed to recover sample tubes that were maybe left in a cache uh, on the surface of Mars. Um, it was kind of an element of robustness in the architecture because Perseverance has always been designed to bring samples back to Mars Ascent Vehicle if necessary. But of course, when the architecture was being developed, we didn't know whether Perseverance was going to land. We didn't know how effective it would be. And now we have another few years of experience of, if you like, not only Perseverance on the surface, but Curiosity, you know, it's there for a decade now. So in a kind of cost-benefit analysis, there was a, a view taken. It was a challenge, if you like, for JPL to be able to build such a big lander uh, to take everything to Mars in one go. So um, they, they pulled out their slide rules and concluded it would be, be uh, a little difficult to do that job. It would be better to do without the sample fetch rover. But on the other hand, to augment, increase the robustness of the architecture by maybe taking one or two helicopters along and they are, if you like, the robustness element of the, of the architecture. The critical thing, really, is that our elements are under, and I keep saying this, are under full development. They're not phase A, phase B, or whatever. We are cutting uh, computers will be delivered later this year. Engines are under test for the Earth, uh, Earth return orbiter. Um, it's hard to scope how what an extraordinary spacecraft that is. Uh, Bepi Colombo was a huge challenge for us, with 17 kilowatts of electric, solar electric propulsion, the most powerful 
deep space electropropulsion we've done, this is 40 kilowatts. It'll be up to one newton of electropropulsion thrust, which is almost like a holy grail to be able to go there and it's 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 staging it has chemical propulsion it stages at mars uh it's got to circle its way down in down to the low orbit to uh, rendezvous and find the uh, sample container in orbit capture that and bring that back up uh circle all the way back up escape mars orbit return i keep saying it's the first interplanetary cargo ship <laughs> it really is um it's a step towards what we need to do in the future and Richard Cook also talked about the, the technical, the mechanical complications of that capture step that you mentioned, because it has to, well, it has to find the, the MAV, the return capsule, first of all, which will be no small task, as you said, but then to encapsulate it to get it safely back down to the surface here. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of interplanetary pass the parcel game. Uh, in which, or you, the question is, some of these people ask, why are we doing it, first of all? Why are we doing it is an order, it's planetary protection, it's an order to ensure that the Earth doesn't contaminate any of the samples we're interested in, but also, very much so, Mars does not contaminate Earth. So we take this, what at first sight may sound like um, somewhat um, ambitious approach of having acquired all of these samples in a container, launched them into orbit, we throw it overboard. From, from the Mars Ascent vehicle in a tiny container, which is not much bigger than, a, well, I guess you'd say a football, I would say a rugby ball, uh, and then our spacecraft have to find it in orbit. Um, and so the cameras and the technology to do that is a super challenge, just finding the ball and then pulling it in and, as you say, sealing it in such a way that uh, there's no risk of contamination all the way forward to the return vehicle hurtling into the Earth's atmosphere and landing hard uh, somewhere in Utah, most likely. So super challenging. I'm almost reluctant to bring it up because it, there is a certain tragic element to it, but the, the loss of the ExoMars rover, or indeed, is it a loss? Because I have read that discussions continue. It's very poignant, I was saying to somebody in the bus out here this morning, we would be go also from here, going straight to Baikonur for 20th September, which is the launch date of uh, Rosalind Franklin rover. All of the spacecraft hardware is sitting in uh, Turin, the uh, uh, rover inside the Zen module, all the rest of it. The whole thing is there, ready to go. So we have uh, basically ran in three months, four months, our industry ran what normally takes a year, a complete phase A study to come up with a concept for covering the mission, potential international cooperation uh, from NASA to enable that to happen. So we know how we would do it. It's now a question for our ministers, and you, some of them are here in this room, who have to make the decision as to whether they want to recover this project. But I keep saying, um, we want to go to a place on Mars that is just over four billion years old, probably a hydrated lake in the early era of planet Mars. It's an even older region than where Perseverance is. Uh, so if you're going to go search for life, that's a place you want to go to. We've been waiting four billion years. ExoMars has already taken us quite a few years, but we may have to be patient to wait a few more to, for it to un unveil its secrets. But I think um, technologically, scientifically, it's still totally competitive. No, you've got to get drilled below the surface to get uh, to regions uh, which have not been affected by radiation that would destroy any uh, organic chemicals, the things you're looking for. So that's where we want to go.
it's that drill that I was most looking forward to. Yeah, I mean, it's a unique piece of technology, European technology, specifically Italian technology. The drill um, is a, a marvel of engineering when you see it, because it has all these separate units that kind of assemble themselves into this two-metre two drill, all autonomously, uh, automatically. And, of course, the whole thing, you know, you have your drill at home that is maybe a one-and-a-half kilowatt drill if you're drilling through your, your plaster. This has got all run off for 100 watts. Uh, and so the gearing and the systems to ensure that it can work and does work is a marvel in engineering by itself. And the internal mechanics of the analytical laboratory that takes the samples, crushes them, distributes them to all uh, the different instruments is also a, a joy to behold. And then you realise the whole thing has been built in a class 10 facility. That means ultra, ultra biologically cure, uh, clean. That's never been done by anybody anywhere else in the world. It's extraordinary. Let me bring this back to where we are today. Preparation for sending these humans from perhaps around the world back to the moon. Yep. And the partnership that are increasingly sophisticated robots like ExoMars and others, how they may have a partnership with those, uh, those humans. It's something we asked Thomas about as well. Yeah, I mean, I totally believe in it. It is this partnership of humans and robots. Robots are the if you like, the eyes uh, and the feel of the humans before that we can send the humans. Um, we've done a lot of work, we've demonstrated using the space station, robots controlled on the surface of the Earth, putting in the time delay and the communications glitches in order to demonstrate the feasibility of doing robots, uh, using robots in uh, perhaps on the Moon, perhaps on Mars, in the more dangerous places where you wouldn't want to send humans to start off with. If we really want to go to shadowed craters, if we want to really search for the most interesting secrets that the moon has to reveal, we may not be able to send the humans in to start off with. It may just be too dangerous. So the combination of humans and robots working together, robots also acting as the, um, the fetchers and carriers to support the astronauts, that's absolutely part of my picture of the future of uh, planetary exploration. So there are partnerships of every imaginable kind across all of this work. Yeah, partnerships, is, it's, it's a cliched word, but it's really true. I mean, I see ESA has it in our DNA. It's 22 member states. I love working with colleagues again here, all the different nations of ESA, all the different companies in Europe, the work have contributed to uh, the 10 nations whose companies have contributed to the European Service Module. That's a partnership within Europe. It's the friendships we have built up, working with people like Thomas, but also every level, you say hi to the people arriving here at KSC. It's a very cool thing, and it's a, I feel, I've reached that stage, I remember the moon landings, um, that if there's a vision of the future, this international partnership is so important for the future of mankind. How has Artemis as a program, and the partnership that East has provided, particularly with uh, the service module, and the potential uh, opportunity to provide astronauts at the gateway end of the lunar surface, how has that allowed you and others within ESA to secure support from your uh, individual member nations and the European public at large? That's a really great question. Um, people often ask why isn't Europe doing more in space more generally and that's the big challenge that we have. People forget, oh, you know, we may have the best Earth observation system in the world, the most accurate satellite navigation system in the world, all the rest of these things, but the very visible elements are exploration. And 
if you like, the United States has a historical accident, has this huge program because of the Cold War, because of the space race. You find m many European countries, and uh, I'm of often thinking about some of the smaller ones, who very specifically say they like being part of the International Space Station, and now they like being part of Artemis because of this international aspect, because they're contributing to sometimes called soft power or a kind of form of diplomacy that is, yes, it is about countries working together, and the United States is a partner. We may be a very small country, but it is possible to work to contribute on major civil projects with the United States. So yes, it has absolutely contributed to making the case within Europe. Obviously, we talked about some of the Russian consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but in that context and also uh, with kind of the, let's say, chilling of some of the relations with China and seeing some of the issues with global, maybe a retrenchment of, uh, or maybe a balkanization of exploration or, or global politics, do you see the symbolic aspect of human spaceflight resonating more strongly for that purpose? Is that in, either at the political or the public level? Is it more important that Europe participate in not just the practical aspect of space, situational awareness, earth climate, science, and, and navigation, but to pursue these more symbolic aspects as a necessary or valuable, the, the value of that increases now? Oh gosh, that's a super interesting question. It's kind of, um, if I was a politician, I'd be able to answer it. <laughs> as, a, as a lowly civil servant, it's, I have to be careful what I say. As a citizen of the world, I'd like to believe that the pendulum will turn, the word the clock will turn, and if we're going to do exploration of Mars, that's such a huge challenge. Um, we need all of the brains of the world working on it. And there's so much of the moon to explore, so much of the, the universe to explore. I hope that it will be in partnership in different ways. We've always worked very well with our Russian partners. Um, the cooperation on ExoMars was, at a working level, was totally uh, professional and very. Um, we learned a lot from working with them. They learned a lot from working with us. So let's, you know, let's hope for a better world. That's all I can say. Well, let's hope that uh, this particular partnership has much to celebrate by this time tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. I can barely wait. Thank you very much, David. It was great to talk to you. The European Space Agency's David Parker closing out our series of conversations with leaders of just a few of the international agencies that are part of the Artemis program. I'm grateful to all of them for spending time with us at the Kennedy Space Center. Greetings, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society. We need your help as we launch a new and exciting project. It's a new subscription-style program for kids. We call it the Planetary Academy, and it's getting underway with a Kickstarter campaign. The Planetary Academy is a special learning and membership opportunity for kids ages 5 to 9. Young explorers will receive four adventure packs each year that have been developed by our experts. We're creating the first adventure packs right now. Academy members will learn all about our solar system through out-of-this-world activities and surprises, preparing them to blast off to exciting destinations. After this first successful year, we'll expand the Academy to a full three-year program that explorers and their families can renew annually. Will you help us kickstart the Planetary Academy by backing our project? Visit planetary.org slash academy today to learn more and get behind this exciting new opportunity. That's planetary.org slash academy. Thanks. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are here with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. You know him. It's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Hi, Matt. Why are we whispering? 
Because if you want people to listen, whisper. <laughs> I thought it was because your dogs are asleep. <laughs> they are, but I, there doesn't seem to be any correlation with that. Hey, you want to hear about the night sky? I do, but first I want to say something about Venusian atmospheric penguins because I was reminded by a couple of listeners that we never posted any of the pictures that we got from quite a few of you. Thank you so much, everyone. We're not going to be able to do all of them. If you are, are, are listening elsewhere, go to this week's page at planetary.org slash radio to see some, uh, some great examples of some of the artwork that we got. Some of the prettiest came from AI machines. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if we'll use any of that, although one of them is awfully pretty. But I especially want to call attention to the one from Juliana, uh, who's a very young person for us. Thank you, Juliana. Nice, nice work. Well, I just want to point out this is not our first. These aren't our first penguins. We had the, the Mars microphone penguin on the failed Mars polar lander. We also had at least one uh, very... A humorous entry into a contest we ran for Huygens long ago of a, a group of green penguins uh, stealing the Huygens probe after it landed. I forgot that one. I'm going to have to look that up unless you can steer me to it. That's great. Yeah, I can help you find that. That, that, that was amusing. In the night sky, also very amusing. Hilarious. Hilarious <laughs> Jupiter is rising just after sunset in the east. And then it'll be up in the east looking super bright. And significantly above it is yellowish Saturn. And Mars coming up uh, in the late evening now. And uh, we'll follow the others across the sky and looking reddish. Mars brightening significantly over the next couple months as it gets closer to Earth. And or Earth gets closer to Mars, depending on how you look at it. And Jupiter will be at opposition opposite side of the Earth from the sun on September 26th. So then it'll really be rising at sunset and setting at sunrise. One might even say, by Jove. <laughs> That's ridiculous. No, it's not. It's brilliant. Keep, keep them coming, Matt. Keep them coming. I'll, I'll do my best. I know you can't help it. Neither can I. Uh, on to this week in space history. Uh, five years since the Cassini end of mission intentionally crashed into Saturn after an unbelievably magnificent mission. In 1965, Lost in Space premieres, which I mention every year for Matt's benefit. It was a special day for me, at least until Star Trek premiered a year later, and then Lost in Space <laughs> kind of faded from uh, my pantheon of uh, television sci-fi greats. Yeah, I wonder what the producer said. Probably something like, danger, danger, losing Matt Kaplan, danger. Okay, uh, on to random space fact. <laughs> RSF, Will Robinson. So uh, so picture, uh, I, I know you've swum in them, Matt, an Olympic-sized pool. Many times. The, the odd dimensions, at least in the U.S., of uh, typically 25 yards by 50 meters, to accommodate swimming of both kinds, short course and long course. Well, the reason that's relevant, there's a lot of, there's a lot of liquid in an Olympic-sized pool, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. You know what would overflow an Olympic-sized pool is if you took all of the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen from the SLS rocket and put them together, which isn't always advisable, 
uh, that would that would overflow an Olympic sized swimming pool. Wow, that's a lot of gas uh, and 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 oxygen. Uh, and I suppose if there were such a pool, you'd want to have a really good wetsuit to swim in it. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you you at least are going dry suit and yeah. uh, possibly something <laughs> more specialized. Sometimes the pool I used to swim in on my uh, on my uh, uh, YMCA AAU team, it was just about as cold as maybe not liquid hydrogen, but it was down there <laughs> near liquid oxygen. I can I can assure you, <laughs> just blew through liquid nitrogen. That, that's not good. Let's move on, shall we, to the trivia contest where I once again ask you a question that seems so straightforward and wasn't. How many, I thought it was, how many JPL directors have there been since the Voyagers launched include acting directors? How do we do? I know how we did, Matt. Well, first of all, we got a very big response. Now, it's oh, not shaping up to be as big as next week's response oh, with nice. your uh, animals uh, on Artemis. But uh, wait, wait till you hear about that one. That is just still coming together. I mean, most people had one particular answer. Here, I'll read this to you. It's uh, from Gene Lewin in Washington. The seven wonders of the world, seven days in the week, seven sisters in the evening skies, according to the Greeks. Voyagers both one and two traveling the seven heavens have seen directors change at JPL. As of now, that count is seven. And that's what you thought we were looking for, right? That is. Uh, and if you go, for example, to the JPL list of directors, that's what you will find since Voyagers launched in 77. But there's a guy who's often left out. And, and, and it looked like maybe because he had a somewhat different status. <laughs> so basically, we'll take seven or eight as the correct answer because they're was the General Charles Terhune, the JPL acting director in 82, who's listed on the JPL site, but for example, not in the list on Wikipedia. And there is Larry James. Uh, yeah. Both of these uh, generals are in his case, Lieutenant General retired from the Air Force. He was the interim director mm. during this latest period between directors. So eight, if you count acting and interim directors, seven if you count acting directors, six if you don't count, five, four, three, two, one. Um, so seven or eight, how do we do? Who won? <laughs> well, it, it happens that random.org selected somebody who came up with the number seven. And that person, get this, Rick Rubio in Nebraska, longtime listener. Uh, he says he'll be sad when I'm no longer hosting, but he's going to keep listening. I recommend that very highly, Rick. There'll be plenty of reason to continue. Rick won one time previously, 10 years and one month ago. Oh, That's my gosh. Long time between wins. Congratulations, Rick. You got yourself a nice prize package. It's a copy of... That beautiful new book, Voyager, Photographs from Humanity's Greatest Journey. I'm not going to argue with that statement by uh, Jens Besmer and uh, Joel Meter, published by Tenuis. Ten, ten, Tenuis? Anyway, it's T-E capital N-E-U-E-S, because I don't remember how to do it. But we're also throwing in a Planetary Society Voyager Neptune Encounter medallion. Good on you, Rick. Congratulations. Yes, and uh, let's not wait another decade for this. <laughs> I got more. 
Uh, just a few. Christopher Mills in Virginia, where would we be without JPL? Doing much less mighty things, probably. Uh, Laura Dodd in California, so many memories from the early days of the Voyagers. I wish I'd pursued planetary science in grad school, but at least I can still enjoy the discoveries all our amazing planetary missions have made for us. And finally, from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, Lucky seven is the number from the JPL. Lots of doctors served as leaders, generals as well. Dr. Murray was in charge when Voyagers took flight. Lori Leshen's at the helm. She'll take us to new heights. Nice. Guess we're ready for another one. Approximately. And I underline the word approximately. How long from launch will it take Korea's Denori mission to reach the moon? How long will it take Denori to reach the moon from when it launched in August of this year? Uh, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Anybody who was paying attention during the opening of this week's show should have a fairly easy time with this one. And you have until the 21st. That would be September 21st at 8 a.m. Pacific time. It's a Wednesday, by the way. Yeah, you didn't know that. I it's it was a news item in the downlink, so I went ahead and uh, mentioned that. But that's okay. We can stick with it's it. It's okay. We should give benefit to those who uh, who listen to the shows. Yeah. Plus, you you probably got it wrong. <laughs> Thanks no, so I, much. I'm, I'm kidding. I haven't heard it. I have faith in you and the downlink. Yeah. Well, you can have faith in the downlink at least. <laughs> that's because I review that. I don't review you. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what dog or sheep you would fly on a spacecraft if you had the option. Uh, stuff buddy, in this case. Go to planetary.org slash nothing, because all I'm going to say is thank you and good night. I have a little bit more to say. You know, it occurred to me that that range of JPL directors, from Bruce Murray to Lori Leshen, those bookends, you're well connected to both of those, aren't you? Yeah, Bruce Murray was my PhD thesis advisor, and Lori Leshen and I were in the uh, same class entering the at Caltech doing planetary type stuff. Do you need more evidence of why we're glad he's the chief scientist for the Planetary Society and that he joins us every week here on What's Up? I've had to turn down JPL director so many times. Oops. I forgot to mention this week's prize, and it's a great one. Our friends at Chop Shop have a newly designed JWST t-shirt. You can check it out at chopshopstore.com, where you'll also find the Planetary Society merch store. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members around the world. We want and need you wherever you are on planet Earth or beyond. Learn more at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Poletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro.